Welcome to TechSing 76, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Thomas Thurston, founder of Growth Sciences International. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Thomas, based on what I've read, you've developed an extremely accurate uh, mathematical model for predicting whether or not a startup will succeed, uh, something that would seem to be pretty, a pretty hard thing to do. So, could you maybe start out by telling us a little bit about the model and how you came up with the idea in the first place? You bet. I think probably the best place to start would be, uh, I was working at Intel, uh, in Intel Capital in '05. And actually, at the time, um, I was tasked with, uh, with some other coworkers to try and start a new business inside of Intel. So there was a technology that we found that was kind of interesting. And the idea was, hey, I wonder if we can use this to build a business inside of Intel rather than invest in an external company. Uh, so with, uh, with the other founders, we, we raised some money inside of Intel. And we did this startup, if you will, inside of a larger company. Um, and at the time... You know, we went through, um, ultimately that startup got acquired outside of Intel, so it was somewhat a success. But in the course of, you know, trying to actually start a business uh, and facing all the challenges uh, that, that are inherent in that, um, I, I started to look around and ask some simple questions and say, gosh, you know, we seem to be having all of these challenges. I would love to find out about other businesses that have been in the same situation. In other words, um, you know, what can I learn from the other data around the company and externally to, to hopefully do a better job? Um, it was really in the course of that that I, I started to look at some academic research on um, different ways of evaluating businesses. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to actually take some of this academic research from a number of different sources and test it and see if it's actually predictive and if it would have predicted uh, the outcomes that we found if we look at all the investments that Intel's made as a data set. So it was really from this curiosity um, that I, I sort of found my way into this modeling. And, and the reason it really took off is because uh, some of the models, of course, were absolute rubbish. They didn't, they didn't predict anything. Um, but a few of the models were very, very predictive of, of what had happened, in fact, in Intel over the course of about 10 years. So with these sort of surprises, uh, a number of uh, scholars, some, some different academics at MIT and Harvard started to get very interested in this research. Um, and ultimately, uh, I, I was invited uh, by a couple of them to come out and do different academic research projects in Boston, uh, you know, building off what we'd done. And ultimately, what happened is uh, this one professor, Clayton Christensen uh, at Harvard, who's, who's one of the models uh, of his had been you know, absolutely the most successful of predicting. Uh, he had invited me to come out there, and, and Intel uh, thought that'd be a good idea. So um, Intel sent me out to Boston for a year. Uh, I worked with Clay, and really the, the point was uh, to bring all of their uh, the resources that Intel and Harvard could bring to bear on this research, make it much more robust, and really prove this stuff out. So that's, uh, that's the whole story, <laughs> and uh, I've been doing that ever since. Oh, okay. Well, I'd like to just back up a little bit here. Go and, and one. My first question is: so you become curious if there's a way to predict whether whether you can build a model for predicting success. And I'm wondering what type of methods did you initially employ? I mean, you have from the research I've done, you have what a law degree and an MBA, right? So you're not a professional statistician or mathematician. So I'm curious, what made you think that you could model something like that? And then how did you? You know, what did you start experimenting with? Well, um, yeah, I don't have a statistics background. Um, 
and uh, you know most of what the tools we use I picked up as I needed them. Um, but basically, I, I just had questions. In other words, gosh, um, you know, let's take for disruption theory for an example. When I first came across disruption theory, uh, this professor Christensen had written three books, um, you know, bestsellers, uh, and he seemed to make some bold claims about the use of his research to predict outcomes, but he had never demonstrated it. In other words, it was very much, uh, you know, we think you should be able to do this, uh, but it hadn't, hadn't been proven. So I really just took the theory and thought, hey, well, if you haven't demonstrated it, I'll test it, and I've got all this data here at Intel. Let me just see if what you predicted actually was representative. And then once, once I started to do that at a very basic level, um, you know, naturally, the statistics came in later to make sure that the results were robust, that they were statistically significant, that there were good correlations. Um, and to do that, I really just engaged these academics. For example, um, Jim Uterbeck is a professor of, of statistics and innovation at MIT, very, very bright guy. Um, you know, I went out to him, for example, and said, here's all my data under NDA. You know, what am I missing? He would point out to some statistical things we needed to do. Um, then I'd go out and, and, and do them. So it was very much learning as I went. Now, when you first started, were you, were you, did you let import this stuff into Excel, just type in some data into Excel, pick out some, you know, I, I don't know, some attributes of these um, startups and just start exp- playing around with basic statistical functions? I mean, sort of what was the process? What was the very first things that you started doing? Yeah, well, so now a lot of what we do is proprietary, but at the beginning it was, yep, it was Excel, uh, some MATLAB, but really that that's it. Um, and and even now that we we use some much more complex tools, um, I personally try I try to keep the math simple or, or subservient to the question. In other words, I I know what I'm trying to find out. Um, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel mathematically or statistically or even computationally. Right? I I just want to get the minimum amount of math, if you will, that I need to do to answer the, the question. Uh, so by focusing on the question and not getting lost in the wizardry of the calculation, um, I managed to get through it, I think. <laughs> Thomas, in your um, predictive modeling, you talk about disruptive versus sustaining businesses. I was just wondering if you could talk us through uh, what they mean and why that's important to your predictive modeling. Sure, sure. Um, so there are a number of different models we use. Um, with disruption being just one of them uh, to answer a very specific kind of question. Uh, so I, I don't like to make it seem as if disruption answers every question possible. But disruption, used a certain way, does a very, very good job at answering this basic question of, of will this startup survive or fail? Uh, and generally we're talking about a, you know, give or take um, a seven-year horizon, right? So in an, an investable time horizon, is the th- thing likely to, to be alive or, or simply dead. And the way that that works um, is pretty nuanced, but I'll give you the short version. Right? So, so it's, it'll sound oversimplified because it is, but for the sake of time, uh, essentially you can say, look, if I have a startup, it can, be, uh, you know, it can be a few million in revenue, it can be on the back of a napkin, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Um, you know, is the strategy, the go-to-market strategy for this business one we would classify as sustaining or disruptive? So, what does that mean? The short version is a sustaining strategy means the startup goes to market, positioning its product or service as having higher performance than the competitors. So a faster chip, um, software with better functionality, uh, what ha- a service with 
better quality. And that's, that's not a bad thing. It, oftentimes, it's okay to have a sustaining strategy. We're just saying that's what it, what it is. By contrast, there are two kinds of disruptive strategies. Uh, one's called a low-end, one's kind of called a new market. A low-end disruption um, essentially means going to market, positioning your startup as the lowest cost and lowest performance offering in the market. So it's almost the opposite of sustaining. You're, you're cheapest and worst. Um, and, and you can't just be cheapest. It, it turns out you actually have to be lower cost and lower performance. Another kind of disruptive strategy is called a new market disruption. And that essentially means you go to market positioning your offering where from the customer's perspective, you're the only game in town. So they can buy your what you're selling or simply nothing. They go on living with this problem. And, and as I'm sure you can already sense, um, all of these definitions take an awful lot more refining. But, but I want to give you the, the general gist. So, um, so once you know if the go-to-market strategy is sustaining or disruptive, um, the next question is, look, is this startup already a big incumbent in a significant way in this industry? Um, you know, is it a Microsoft and operating systems? Or is it a new entrant? Uh, and, and it turns out, of course, most startups are new entrants by virtue of being new of being startups. So, so once you have those two variables, if you will, you can already start to make some pretty astonishing probability statements about whether something's likely to survive or fail. Um, now, the precise probabilities uh, are industry-dependent, uh, but they give you an idea. Overall, the, these probabilities tend to be true about 80 to 90% of the time. Uh, so, so that's you know remarkably higher than. Yeah, that's amazing. Day. Actually, <laughs> eighty to ninety yeah. percent. That's that's amazing. Because I think I think I watched in a, a video where you we were presenting to a group. You it was something like you 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 gathered a bunch of CEOs and had them make a prediction. Could you maybe tell us that little story? Because I think that's pretty pretty funny. Yeah. Well, we you know we we've tested lots and lots of people, um, around four hundred people in different lab experiments, both in academic and practiced environments, and. Um, you know, for example, we, we just wrote five one-page summaries of businesses, so little one-page business plans, and we tried to disguise who the company was. And we gave these five summaries to, to a CEO, during a CEO summit to 20 CEOs uh, of companies. Um, and their job was to read each summary and then check one of two boxes at the bottom of the page, and the boxes said survive or fail. So they, they had to predict if they thought each of those five businesses would survive or fail in a vacuum. Um, and when it was all said and done, uh, their accuracy was, I believe, 52%. So they were 52% right, which is pretty good. But you have to keep in mind, um, there are only two boxes to check. Uh, you would have expected 50% to be the average. And, and it was when we, when we did the statistical tests. Um, it was random. So there was no statistical significance. You would have gotten about the same accuracy if you just flipped a coin. Right. We, we did this with another group of, of very senior finance managers, uh, 34 finance managers in a big uh, you know, Fortune 100 company, very big company you all would have heard of. Uh, and these were very elite, very, very bright and educated finance people who, who usually have the last word on whether an inv a new business gets funded or not in a company. And uh, their accuracy was, uh, I believe it was... 34%. I, I can double check. but So it was actually worse than, than a coin toss, which uh, you would not expect. Um, now, it was also <laughs> random. Uh, 
but the joke there was, you know, everybody in that company had suspected that finance was evil, and now they had proof, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, and it's and these were very very bright people, so it's it's interesting. We did another group, a smaller group of about sixteen managers in a, another very very large company, uh, technology firm, and and they were actually the third group was only accurate twenty percent of the time. Wow. Which, wow. It's actually it's it's just as hard to be twenty percent accurate as it is to be 80% accurate because you, you almost have to know the right answers and not choose them. Right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it defies probabilities. Um, so I, I have no explanation. Um, well, they need to employ the George Costanza approach. You remember that from Seinfeld where there was an episode where he realized that he, he always made the wrong decision. So he, as soon as he figured out what he wanted to do may, uh, intuitively, he would do the opposite and then it became a huge success. Yeah, the Costanza <laughs> approach would have reversed. They would have been as good as as we are. <laughs> right. It's, 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 it, it seems like those <clears throat> seems like those would have made more money if they'd have flipped a coin. They would have, and in fact, um, I mean, I was it was partly in jest, but I said, look, um, if all you guys do from now on is is just flip a coin, then you know, I I paid for myself in this this one hour we spent <laughs> together. <laughs> so. That's, you know, like Costanza, just leave on a win, right? Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Right. <laughs> exactly. So just going back to um, <clears throat> the predictive modeling, so what should a startup look like in order to get a good prediction on, on the scale? So, so to finish that thread, um, it turns out if, if, you have, if you're a new entrant uh, with a sustaining strategy, you have very, very low probabilities of surviving. In fact, empirically, that's the worst strategy probably humanly available. Um, so what I've just said there, um, I fully realize what I've said. I've said if you're a new entrant, if you're a startup, and you position your offering as having better performance than the competitors, that's the reason you'll probably fail. Hmm. And, and, of course, I don't care if you're at Harvard or MIT or anywhere. When you go to Startups 101 at any business school, what they teach you to do, of course, is to find a way to, you know, they ask you. What's the sustainable competitive advantage relative to the competitors? And what they're asking you essentially to do is to find your sustaining strategy. It's, it's what we all think we're supposed to do. And it turns out that it very predictably uh, leads to failure. Wow. So, you, <laughs> so, so, what, so, so, so now you've told us how, how not to do it. So what should you do? Well, um, as I'm sure you're guessing, uh, it turns out if... And again, these details need to be very nuanced. But if you do have a technically disruptive strategy and you're a new entrant, you actually have a, a relatively high probability of survival. And that's, that's really the second takeaway. Uh, your probability of survival with a disruptive strategy as a new entrant is much higher than we would normally associate with innovation. Um, it's not guaranteed. You can still fail. But probability-wise, to give you an example, uh, Professor Christensen's PhD thesis um, in the 90s was on the disk drive industry and high tech. And he, he looked at every business going in and out of the disk drive industry over a period of years. And he found that new entrants in that industry with disruptive strategies were more than six times more likely to survive than any other new entrants across the board. So it's not guaranteed, but oh my gosh, right? The, the difference can be huge. Um, I think any startup, you know, most of the time, you know, in the venture capital world, uh, you know, about 80% of startups fail across the board. If you can boost your probabilities by even 5%, that's astronomical. Have you got any web, web startup examples so that uh, something we could wrap up ahead around? 
Yeah, sure. There's there's lots. Um, you know, a, a great example of a company that's you know been well written about by Christensen and others as, as disruptive was uh, you know think six years ago of Salesforce.com. You know, at the time, uh, you know, now we all realize it's a great big success, uh, but at the time, it was this rinky little online CRM system. The functionality was pretty crude. Uh, it, the security was a main concern. People thought, oh, geez, I don't want to have all of my data sitting on some server somewhere. And there were all these questions with reliability and security and functionality. And compared to Siebel or Microsoft CRM or even Goldmine, um, yeah, Salesforce.com really wasn't that great an offering. It was, if you will, uh, cheaper and worse, so lower cost and lower functionality. And when we think of the cost, too, if I was to even have Goldmine, let's say, for my team of six salespeople or, or ACT, I would have to have servers somewhere, right, if I want to VPN them in. So the cost isn't just the license. I have to have a server. I have to maintain the server, which is a pain in the neck, and they're notoriously problematic. Um, the cost is, is relatively high. But with Salesforce.com, it's, it's in the cloud. So I can just, you know, I pay my license. Or if I'm one user, I'm, I'm on there for free. I have CRM, um, and it, it might be cheaper and worse, but for a lot of small businesses, it was good enough for what they needed, and their alternative was really nothing. So in a way, it was both a low-end disruption and a new market disruption, and it was lower cost, lower functionality, and appealed to all these non-consumers, if you will. Um, now, of course, what's happened is with that disruptive foothold, over time, they've, they've continued to add functionality, increase their reliability, uh, ameliorate concerns over security, um, and they've gotten better and better and better, and now their analytics and so forth rival um, mainstream CRM vendors. Um, so, so you don't have to stay cheaper and worse, but the point is strategically, or at least statistically, that's a much more advantageous place to start your business. So does that mean that, that the time right now is right for someone else to create a new salesforce.com that's not very good? that's a lot cheaper and basically do, do the cycle again? Well, I, I think, um, yeah. I mean, obviously there are a lot of nuances to discuss, but, but for example, uh, if Google woke up one day and said, hey, we want to do a cheaper, free Salesforce.com and give it away just so that we can sell AdWords around the edge of the page, um, that might be the kind of thing. I'm not saying that would wipe salesforce.com off the planet. But that would be the kind of thing that as an analyst I would look at and say, oh, that's potentially even more disruptive than salesforce.com. I need to flag it and pay attention uh, because that's the kind of thing we might see as a real threat in seven years' time. Hmm. Now, for explanatory reasons, I mean, because you're talking pro using probabilities, but in terms of sort of like uh, explaining why things work. It seems to be being worse. One of the reasons that being worse is, is advantageous is that it doesn't attract the attention really of the incumbent because they look at it and go, oh, this thing's a joke. It's not really a threat. Whereas if you have an offering that is really good or better than the incumbents, they're going to get concerned about that and, and, and put some effort into improving their products. Is, is that right? You nailed it. So, so that's the question. Why, why do these new entrants with sustaining strategies fail so much? Um, and really, here's, here's all, this is as complex as it gets. If, if you're a new startup and you're actually better than those big incumbents in their market, 
you force them into a situation where they only have two choices available. They can either buy your company or crush you. Because if they don't buy or kill you, the fact that you're better than them means you will begin to take their best customers away from them. So their choice of inaction is, is not an option. They, they have to respond or they'll start to lose their best customers. So they can't just sit there and ignore you. Um, and, and now, it turns out they, a lot of startups think, well, wait a second, if, if they have to buy or kill me, I, I would love to get bought. That sounds like a pretty good exit strategy, and, and it just turns out um, the, the incidence of acquisitions are, are very low uh, in that category. So they have to buy or kill you, but they're much more likely to kill you. And the way they generally kill you isn't by wiping you out with some dramatic product. It's by copying you and bringing in their entire ecosystem of vendors and channel partners and sales force to, to gradually give you a death of a thousand cuts. So they're not, they're not going to kill you with kindness. No. <laughs> so you innovate and they basically take that innovation, uh, homogenize it and then bring it to their, their partners. Yeah. How many times have we seen a new startup do something really neat and then all the big guys copy them and then we forget who that startup even was a few years later. <laughs> and of course, Facebook does that continually. And I'm wondering if also another reason why this might work, the strategy is that if you do something worse, you can get something out there early. Like you're not caught in this continual cycle of, of stealth research and development mode. You get something out there and you start getting feedback from the market. So yeah, it kind of sucks. Um, so you're, you're definitely not attracting the attention from the incumbent, but also it's, you're getting something out there in front of customers. Does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, and that's, that's not the primary theory of causation, but I think it's certainly a contributing factor. Um, you know, like... Uh, like some people say, right, ship and then test. You, know, right. you just get something out there that's good enough. You know what, it's, it's lower performance and it's lower cost, but you, you probably didn't have to spend as much time or money developing it, um, and you get out there a little faster. It kind of reminds me of um, the, the predictors, oh, no, the, the way that good game players like good poker players or good chess players win. They, they don't win by, by crushing in one big round. They win by consistently taking very small steps very small wins the whole way through. So they'll take a few points here, a few points there, and they will consistently do that over their entire career. Yeah. But it's sort of, I, sort of similar to I that. would agree. It's why the house always wins at a casino. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing which is interesting is, is you talk about, I think, I'm not sure if you, if, if I read, um, I read this in some of the Clayton Christensen's uh, stuff or if it's something that you've said, but that you say that, you know the three uh, the three attributes of disruptive theory are one cheaper, two worse, and three always getting better. So, but the thing is, when they're always getting better, it's almost like it's an exponential. So that you're always getting better. So initially, it seems so linear and it seems so low that the incumbent isn't aware of it. But by the time the incumbent become the incumbent becomes aware that you are getting better, you're getting better so rapidly that it's too late for them to respond. Is that? have anything to do with it? You also have a big market base. Yeah, right. I would say this, the velocity is a factor, but the market base is a bigger factor. And, and what, but really, I think um, the, the incumbents are always aware of you. You know, there's this, uh, I think there's even a bit of a myth. Some people think disruption happens because the incumbents don't see you coming from the low end. They, they always see you, especially now. They get an email the minute you have a website, right? Somebody tells them you exist. Right. But by being cheaper and worse, 
again, they're, they're not that, they don't have to buy or kill you. In other words, they're not forced to respond the same way they would be with a sustaining innovation. So the fact that they can ignore you and monitor you uh, works to your advantage. And what we find is eventually these incumbents uh, uh, respond. So they, they try to come back with a, a comparable offering. And, and they usually when your market gets big enough and starts to hurt them a little bit, they always respond. But what we found is, is there are internal barriers to their response that work very well in the, in the favor of the new entrant. It's not that the incumbents can't respond. In fact, a lot of what I do for a living is help incumbents respond to disruption. Um, right. But the way you do that has to be very, very sharp and very, very focused. And there's a specific game plan for responding to disruption. Most companies, big companies, don't respond well because they simply can't prioritize the fight. In other words, if I'm Microsoft, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fighting with lots of other companies at the high end all the time. I've been fighting with them for years, and this disruptor comes in from the low end. Um, yeah, I might launch a retaliatory offering, but frankly, I, I've got my hands full with, with other pressing core battles, and it's, it's a lower-cost offering that's attacking me. So in other words, it's less profitable for me as an incumbent to invest in that fight. Uh, because if I win, I've essentially cannibalized my more profitable offering. So it's, it's very unprofitable, uh, or it feels unprofitable for incumbents to respond. Let, let's use an example of Blockbuster Video. So a classic disruption was Netflix disrupting Blockbuster. Um, and now a, sort of the nail is in the coffin as of the last week. <laughs> right. Um, Blockbuster ignored them, mocked them, said, oh, that's horrible. Who would ever want to do that? We have all this strength in brick and mortar and instant gratification, and people can come in, and we have channels, and so on and so forth. Um, eventually, they said, okay, this is actually a threat. And what did they do? They, they said, well, we're going to offer a, a mail-in service too, but it's going to be kind of a hybrid strategy tied to our brick and mortar, and we'll only let you do that with old releases. They tried to basically cram it into their existing profit model, and when you cram a disruption into the existing profit model, it doesn't work. They were still pray, paying for brick and mortar. Um, they, they didn't have all these efficiencies and a business model that could profit with the Netflix profit model. So Netflix had a completely different structure and different overhead costs. Uh, so it made them profitable in that low-end market. Blockbuster, they, they would lose money if, if they managed to get into that market because their overhead was so high. So, so these are the kind of dynamics that play. It's, it's not just a perception issue, but the, the incumbents have a really hard systemic ability to respond. Just, uh, I'm, I, the reason why I'm not saying anything is just because I'm kind of dumbfounded <laughs> by how kind of, you know, how, in a sense, how easy it is. You know, it's it's so simple when you know how. It's like a magic trick. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, once you have the answer, the answer is always easy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, okay. But if you take it to the limit, you seem like the you're always disruptive if you're free. Um, you know, so if we go down, if every at least on the let's say you're on the web, you're doing a web startup, which is sort of our 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 realm of concern on the show anyway, and. But one thing we've sort of noticed, at least I think we've noticed, is that a lot of times these free com- these free offerings don't work very well because you you just can't make enough money and and uh, 
and people don't want ads. So I'm just wondering is like if everybody goes to free and then uh, that doesn't, just doesn't seem to work because companies want to pay something to know that you're going to be around or people don't want ads or you just don't make enough money and eventually just run out of money and go away. I mean, what is your thought at the limit of going to free? I mean, how cheap can you get? <laughs> well, you can't get cheaper than free and still make right. money. I don't. At least I haven't. If I, I haven't found that business model yet. Oh, um, they're, they're, they're certainly trying on the web, right? <laughs> I mean, they're trying to figure out like how can we give stuff away and not make any money and still be a company. And, yeah. So, so let me answer that question. But first, I think it's important to say that, um, of course, all this stuff is more nuanced, and this is the third time I've I've said that. But it, I'll probably say it another two more times. But um, you know, it turns out the reason so few companies have truly disruptive strategies is because it actually is very difficult to do in practice. I mean, to, to understand that it needs to happen is one thing, and that's a breakthrough. But to actually do it can be very, very challenging. Um, and a great example is the one you gave. Okay, um, if how do you be cheaper than free? <laughs> and, right. and so one way to do that is, uh, unfortunately, to also be free uh, and worse, uh, but but good enough for a large segment of the population, and and maybe we have Craigslist as an example, right? Now nobody's making any money there, but it was certainly cheaper and worse, and it, it's doing great and it's disrupting things left and right. Um, but the question, of course, is how do we make money? Well, really, there's there's a couple options. You know, you, you have to do something really innovative, and I'll I'll use Google as an example. Um, or you have to be a new market disruption. Because remember, cheaper and worse only applies if you're a low-end disruption. If you're a new market disruption, price no longer matters. Uh, so just, just to keep in mind, there's two ways to, to get to a disruption. But let's go back to the cheaper and worse one. Um, you know, today, people ask me a lot about Google, of course. And today, it's, it's you know, it, it almost seems like, well, gosh, of course, of course, Google is going to happen. But but it certainly didn't look like that several years ago. And um, now, in, if we were to put ourselves back in search engine land in 2000 or 1999, and remember what the landscape looked at like, uh, there were lots of search engines: you know, Alta Vista, Yahoo, MSN. Remember AOL? <laughs> you know, um, and that was that was the landscape of incumbents, if you will. And there were all kinds of search engines trying to start all the time, and most of them we've never heard of or we've forgotten. But if we look at the basis of competition among those incumbents back in 1999, their whole business model was they were trying to compete with, with newspapers. Right? They were trying to be the first place everybody went in the morning with that cup of coffee to find out what was going on in the world. And then... So, and, and by the way, they were very, they've been very successful at disrupting newspapers. We all know that's, that's, that's actually worked fairly well. But given that at the time they were competing with newspapers and each other, um, if you look at the way they were even designed, it, it's very reflective of that value proposition. You know, if you look at Yahoo and AOL and uh, MSN, even today, you go on there and what do you have? You have your sections, you have your sports, you have your weather, you have your news. Um, it's laid out much like a newspaper because that was the basis of competition. Who can attract the most eyeballs in the morning? Now, they were all free, so price is null. When you look at Google, Google came out and it was a bar. It still is. It's just a bar. There's no sports. There's no weather. They didn't even have email at the time. And so when you look at the mainstream basis of competition, Google was also free and it was worse. In other words, it wasn't uh, 
raising the hairs or the competitive instincts of, of these other search engines. Now, today we say, well, you know, the ability to, to do powerful searches, uh, the algorithm is a competitive advantage. Google certainly better uh, than, than those other search engines wasn't that sustaining. And, and really, the, the point is, at the time, everybody claimed their algorithm was better and it actually took a period of years to actually figure out who was, right? So, so that, was, that was not an advantage that anybody could, could specify. They all said they were the best. Um, and nobody would even, no one had any way of actually knowing until the results were in. So, so Google was cheaper and worse. Uh, and it's, you know, one, one feature at a time gotten better and better and better. It turns out its algorithm was better. Um, and they've added functionality, and now they're this, this colossus. Uh, but I think it's just a good example of, of when we've even seen low-end low disruptions in a free land on the web. But remember, you can also try to be a new market as well. Does it count if, as a first-time Google user, when I was first told about Google, that to me the results felt better? Or is that just my kind of cognitive bias that they felt better? Well, the, I'll say this, that the more evident it was that Google had a better algorithm, the more risk they were of being attacked by the incumbents. So, so that's just reality, right? And I think if, 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 if day one, it was just absolutely better in every, every way of search and it was readily apparent, um, my, this theory would have suggested that the incumbents would have had to respond because the threat would have been as clear as day. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. There's plenty of I mean, there's plenty of examples um, and uh, books, kind of showing that Yahoo just didn't think search was interesting. Yeah, they just didn't didn't see anything in it. Well, it wasn't well, another... the basis of competition. It wasn't how anyone made money because the advertisers, you know, they they hadn't figured out how to make money with search. It wasn't important. Yeah, another current example of what Google's doing is their Google Docs strategy against Microsoft, right? So, like, their spreadsheet and word processor. I mean, compared to Microsoft Word and Excel, especially compared to Excel, it's pretty lame. But it's free, and it's sufficient for most uses, unless you're doing a lot of sophisticated modeling or have a ton of data. Um, I find myself, because I just moved to a Mac from a Windows machine, and so I don't have the latest version of Office installed. I just keep using Google Docs, and it just kind of is good enough. <laughs> but yeah. it, seemed, it seemed like Microsoft for the longest time was just sort of like they didn't want to get pulled into that because they didn't want to cannibalize their profits. Um, that's that's you know. right. Yeah, I, I would agree with you and say that um, you know it's, uh, we can talk about whether it will actually win or not, but certainly Google Docs fits that pattern of disruption where, um, where you, you, know, you would expect it. You know, if I were Microsoft, I would be very, very worried about being disrupted over the long term by Google Docs and anything just like it. Okay, I've got a good example for you. Let's say, um, and it'd just be interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, so you know that there's plenty of free, uh, free programming languages, um, but it's hard to program. Yeah. Let's say you were to build a system where you didn't need to program anymore, you just kind of drag-dropped, and you created new, you could create applications just with a drag-and-drop interface. It, what, how would you predict the success of a business like that? By the way, Thomas, that's my project that I'm working on. Talking about. <laughs> well, look, you know, uh, the devil's in the details, but let's just take that as, as a little bit of a theoretical, right, for now. Um, but, uh, you know, some companies have actually been successful doing just that. If you look at Garage Games, which uh, Mark Frohmeyer started in Oregon a few years back, um, he just realized, you know, at the time, if you wanted to build a video game, you had to be a developer with a staff and a huge budget 
that was the game. There, there were no tools for developers to speak of. You had to have a lot of money and a lot of expertise. Um, and he thought, gosh, you know, it would be great if there were just some simple tools. You know, maybe the games wouldn't be as good, but that could allow folks to develop some games for, uh, you know, a hundred bucks, right? Or, um, and he, you know, he developed very simple, easy to use, lower cost, lower performance version. And uh, that, of course, ultimately got bought. Um, but, but that, you know, whether it's Mark's company or another company, that, that kind of approach can fit the model uh, sometimes. Because it's disruptive in the sense that there aren't, there, there isn't anyone else doing that is that the reason why well it's it's new market disruption in the well it's both low end right it's cheaper and worse but it's also new market in in that by doing that you you allow all of these developers to to join the market to start developing games where without you they just wouldn't they would they would be sitting out on the sidelines um another good example is is potentially uh you know adobe air right um, if you want to design, it, it allows you to, it's a runtime, of course, and you can just, just by knowing how to write in HTML and Flash, uh, you can create a number of applications, and they'll run cross-platform uh, as long as Adobe Air is there. So, so similar tools uh, that allow less skilled, less rich developers to, to do something that was only previously done by the, you know, the very rich and very skilled, it has a, you know, oftentimes leads to a disruptive path. Yeah, and another example I would use, um, sort of like one competitor you could put up for, for my project called AppIgnite is uh, QuickBase, which is owned by Intuit. Okay. And they're, pr- they're pretty big. I, I, I can't remember. I thought I remember seeing something like they had a revenue of $60 million a year or something. I might be wrong about that, but they, have a, they, they make a fair amount of money, and they, they sell their stuff to corporations. that They charge $60 per user per month for an application developed in QuickBase. So that's that's a lot, right? I mean, and so QuickBase is probably it's really geared towards corporations because only corporations are going to pay pay that kind of money, um, and it's probably fairly robust. It's been around for a long time. It's it's you know has a lot. Of, it's very secure and all that. But again, it's very very high price. There's no way you're going to build something like that for a really small smaller companies are going to use that for internal use or or anyone's going to build that for a, a more of a public application. So that's just another example, I guess, of more expensive competitor incumbent yeah intuit has done a good job uh historically of coming out with disruptions and i think scott cook i just sort of had an intuition uh, about it um you know quickbooks very very disruptive to bookkeepers and cpas um and 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 payroll services right TurboTax, lots of those applications were very disruptive and, and had a huge impact on companies like adp and paychecks and and, and different folks in that industry Okay. Well, here, I, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to, one thing we just kind of skipped by, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about. You, you said that, you mentioned about predicting whether you think Google Docs will succeed in the end in, in terms of disrupting Microsoft Office. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you done any research on that? Yeah, well, at some point, uh, at some point, I force people to pay me to finish my answers, right? All <laughs> ah, right, okay. Well, that's, 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 that's reasonable. Because your, your consulting practice, Growth, Growth Sciences International, is based on this research. So you work, your consulting firm, you work with what, venture capitalists and larger corporations to help them understand where they're, where they're vulnerable to disruptive theory and VCs to where they can benefit from this theory? Yeah, we we do, and and so I I really see what we do as a research firm um, as opposed to consulting. Although we we do some consulting, and and I think the difference is um, as a research firm, our primary goal is 
to keep pushing the boundaries of, of what's possible uh, using these models and building new models, we, we have interesting problems, and then we look for people to pay for us to follow them. Uh, so that's more of a research bent. Consulting is more about finding customers for general knowledge, right? Um, but I would say, you know, two-thirds of what we do is, is pure research. The last third really is consulting in the traditional sense, and we work with, um, you know, um, large companies for the most part, uh, venture capitalists, hedge funds, investment banks, you know, anyone who's trying to allocate capital um, or make bets on whether startups will make it or not. And Really, the one line of what what I do for a living, um, you know, my research firm predicts if businesses are likely to survive or fail, and, and that's what we do day in and day out. Do you use your own predictive models on your own business? That's an interesting question. Um, I think if I was to do that, I would predict that my own business will be destroyed by the incumbents, right? <laughs> so I would, right. Probably, I would probably recommend a bunch of puts. Um, <laughs> but... But really, uh, you know, maybe it's a cop-out. In fact, I'm sure it's a cop-out. But this is, this is really a labor of love. I, I'm a research geek at heart. I've been doing this work now for about five years. Um, and, and I'm just continually interested in pushing the boundaries of what's possible, even at the expense of, of maybe bi- building out the business. So I, I, I would, sure, I would love to put a different hat on and, and try to make this a huge disruptive business. Um, in all candor, I've been so focused, uh, I've been so geeked out on the work that I, I just haven't thought of it that way. <laughs> well, how did you how did you get started with um, your consulting firm? I mean, you know, it's, it seems like, because you haven't written a book based on this or even published any papers on it, have you? I mean, in terms of I, like getting notoriety <laughs> and building off a platform? I, I've been working really, really hard not to publish. <laughs> to be okay. So, I mean, we, we certainly have published in academia and case studies, but... but um, you know, ultimately, we, we decided not to publish uh, anything directly talking about the methods we use. Um, and that was, that was just a commercial decision, to be honest with you. Um, Is that so you can keep, keep the, the, me- the methods and the models proprietary and close to your chest? Yeah, and, and part of that was for the sake of my business. But to be honest with you, um, a lot of that is actually prerequisite to working with some of the people we work with. In other words, they, they would actually throw they, – they would – well, they flat out – contracted us away from ever being able to publish some of this stuff, right? But Because um, they wouldn't want their competitors to be able to do the same thing. Well, when, yeah, when you find a truth out there in the universe or something that, that tends to work, let's put it more modestly, um, you, know, it, you know, like we said earlier, the answer is always easier when you have the answer. <laughs> and and right, those things right. have such commercial applicability that, that there's a, you know, today there, there's a lot of restraints to putting that out. But, but I try to be open... Uh, as I can with these things, as you've seen. I mean, I, I think um, at the end of the day, what what's most important is that uh, more startups succeed in this country uh, and, and around the world because that's, you know, we're in a recession. The way to get out of that is to really innovate and be successful. So I think as much as I have to mind my P's and Q's, at the same time, anything we can get out into the community is, is important, right, for a much bigger reason. You were initially doing your this work, this research on your own while at Intel, and but then there, then suddenly you're at Harvard working with Clayton Christensen. That's a big jump. So how did that whole thing happen? I mean, how did you, how did you go from Intel to working with one of the leaders, the thought leaders in the business world? Well, I, I wish I could say it was a master plan, but honestly, I just uh, I became very interested in the research. I, I shared the research. Other people got interested, and it, it kind of happened. Um, in fact, I'd met with Christensen 
once I came back to meet with him again and another professor, Willie Shi, um, and after two hours in a conference room between the three of us, uh, Clay looked at me and he said, look, he goes, what can I do to get you here for a year? <laughs> and I, you know, my, my, I confess my jaw kind of hit the table. I thought, oh my gosh, well. <laughs> you're like, you're, you had me at hello? <laughs> yeah, I basically, the first thing you have to do is convince Intel to pay for it. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, which, which Intel was certainly interested in the research too. But I, I'd really like to think that, you know, we were just on to some interesting stuff and it was very clear how it would be interesting to, to anybody in this field and, um, and worth investing in. And uh, after the fellowship at Harvard was over, the research project came to a close. Um, there were so many people, uh, uh, you know, both in and out of Intel that, that had been drawn to the research while we were doing it and sharing it. Um, that uh, there was just so much demand to keep doing this research, and, and that's why I've had my own firm ever since, because, um, you know, to continue doing it in Intel, Intel and I parted on, on very, very good terms, but to continue doing it in Intel would have been trying to shoehorn the research into some other functional role, and, and we felt this, or I felt this deserved, you know, much more dedicated effort. Okay, so when you were initially working on this, and you said you were sharing it, so you weren't very proprietary about it in the early stages, is that right? Is that how the research found its way to to uh, Clay or Clayton Christensen? Well, yeah, at the time it was a matter of, I mean, these, these professors at Harvard and MIT were interested. There was a lot of talk going on. Um, a number of them had said, you know, have you, have you talked to Christensen said, yeah, Have you talked to Christensen yet? And I said, no, I, I haven't spoken to him. I, I don't know him. Um, so, so it was, you know, a matter of going from a meeting upstairs in Harvard to downstairs and meeting with Clay. <laughs> so it, right. it sort of an, it evolved organically, I guess, is the answer. Right, right. And now, is is he involved in uh, your current consulting um, effort, or is is he or is he just someone you collaborate with outside of that? Yeah, there's no there's no formal relationship between him and my firm at all. I mean, we're we're friends and and. You know, we're in touch, but uh, this is, I wouldn't want people to think this is somehow affiliated. It's its, its own thing. I'm, I'm in Oregon, I have my firm, and it's, it's, there's no formal relationship with him. Right. Um, now, you, you mentioned, uh, I guess I saw in a video of, of uh, one of your talks, you mentioned how when you first went to give a, I think it was a presentation uh, at MIT, and this MIT professor of, uh, I think, statistics came up to you and said that there were probably some problems with your methods and that he worked with you to help uh, improve the model. Can you talk at all about what happened there? Yeah, no, that was a very good point. When I first went out there, I, I had all my data and I had this accuracy, which was about 85% accuracy. And I said, look, um, you know, tell me, tell me what's, you know, is this real or not? Because we have this very high predictive indication, but I, I don't want to be a sucker who gets excited and then realizes that, that it was just a, a stack of cards. And, and this was Jim Uterbeck, who I mentioned earlier, and he said, look, um, you know, if you had just predicted that, if, you, if all you ever did was predict that every startup failed 100% of the time, you'd probably be about 80% accurate, right? Most of them right. do. So until we find the right statistical methods, uh, um, you don't know if you've got anything. So the very first thing you need to do is see if there's a statistically significant correlation. And only then can you be concerned with things like gross accuracy. Because if, if there's no correlation, the gross accuracy just doesn't matter. It's a complete illusion. 
Um, so, so we didn't break any new grounds in statistics, right? You know, just some, some basic models um, tested for a correlation, and it turns out we had one with over 99% statistical significance. You know what would be interesting, um, uh, well, Justin, I guess I'll start this to you, is if, if, if Thomas was able to work with a, 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 an incubator like Y Combinator that launches right. 30 you know, new startups every six months, have you heard, uh, Thomas, have you heard of Y Combinator? Are you aware of them? I have, and I actually haven't met anyone from Y Combinator, but uh, I've admired their work from afar. Uh, I'd, I'd love to work with them. It just hasn't come up. That, yeah, because I, I would think, I mean, Paul Graham, who's sort of the thought leader and the guy who runs Y Combinator, I mean, he's he really has a lot of great ideas about why startups work and things like that. But, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard him, heard him write or talk um, explicitly about this disruptive theory as you describe it. And it would be interesting to see sort of overlay your research on top of the models of all of these the startups that get generated. There's also so many, I mean, if you go back over the years and also tech stars, if you, if you run your theory on top of all of the different startups that basically have closed and have succeeded, it'd be really interesting to see whether it fits. Yeah. I'm, I'm always interested in projects like that and more data. Uh, we, we have a pretty big data set now, but you can never, obviously, you can never have too much data, and it, we almost always learn some nuance every time we apply it to a new set. Um, so, yeah. But in some ways, then, then your theories would st- let, let's say Let's say you did that, and then it became very widely known amongst the startup community of Techstars and Y Combinator that whatever they did needed to match your theory. All of a sudden, your theory is then shaping the future, which could then change the whole landscape entirely. Yeah, and, and hopefully, if if more startups are being successful we've changed it in a good way uh, that's right. that's the hope the hope is we haven't totally homogenized everything and now there's nothing innovative going on right but i i don't think i'm not worried that that would happen i would like to see more efficient use of capital uh, around the world in that more startups do well post investment and i i think that's good for investors but it's certainly good for entrepreneurs and the communities that depend on those companies uh, to be the cornerstones of their communities so you mentioned investment. Does this only relate to investment? I mean, how, or, or does this model also relate to bootstrapping? It, it relates to both, um, absolutely. So really the, the investment side, the VCs and funds, they're just interested in allocating capital. So they're really asking me to pick winners. Uh, the companies I work with, even though they tend to be very large, they're much more involved with, look, uh, don't just give me a prediction. But tell me, if it's not going to work, tell me why and what we can do to fix it. So it's, it's completely operational. And it's very much about rolling up the sleeves, uh, getting in the weeds, and, and helping correct uh, what otherwise might lead to failure. Um, I, one thing I found interesting was I, in one of your talks, you mentioned how the exceptions to your model, that there are exceptions, like the iPhone was an exception, right? It was better and more expensive. And I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the iPhone in particular as an exception, but w- what you're doing about looking into uh, exceptions to the model. Yeah, I, I spend much more time on exceptions than the rule. Uh, I think the exceptions are much, well, from a research perspective, the, the only way you can improve the model is to look at the exceptions and to be open about what does and doesn't work in your model uh, so that you can make it better. And, um, you know, and I think that's part of any intelligent discussion, right? I, this can't be a, a black box. <laughs> right. And, and so 
I, there's a lot of disagreement in the disruption community about the iPhone. Uh, so I, I recognize that. And I, all I can say is, look, our, the way we use disruption in our models, uh, it's consistent with all the prior literature, uh, but, but it's very, very different and much more narrow than anything else that's been published. So we're looking at it in a very narrow way because we're extremely, we're, enti- we're only concerned with predictions and, and uh, representation in the data. So that's why I talk about it more narrowly and that's, that's why I can say that you might interpret disruption theory one way, but in our model, the iPhone would not have been something we would have predicted to survive. And so the fact that it's been a huge success we think we can explain why, but we wouldn't have caught it if we're to be honest, right? If you'd asked me whether or not to invest in iPhone as a company, um, you know, five years ago, I would have said don't. So I would have been wrong. Uh, again, 80 to 90% accurate is 10 to 20% wrong. Right. right. <laughs> so, um, so, so why was it, I, I think there are a lot of versions of, of why was the iPhone an exception, but, but I think it might be interesting to talk about some other exceptions too. Um, and say, you know, when does a company, a new entrant, come out with a sustaining strategy and do well? I mean, we, we don't just have the iPhone. We have Starbucks, right? We have Whole Foods. Um, we have a number of manufacturing companies. Um, we have Ralph Lauren, right? Vera Wang. Uh, there's, there's several exceptions. And, and the real challenge there is to say, look, you know, we, we can't just change the model quickly because we'll lose our correlation with the greater rule. But can we take pieces from those? Are those except, is there a pattern in the exceptions that when we push it back into our model still correlates just as strongly or even more so with, with all the other data that we have? Yeah, it's, well? almost, it's almost like it's a sub-model. You know? So if, like, if you're going to take the approach that you're going to be better and more expensive, then here are the rules of how, what, what needs to happen in that case. Exactly. And we, we certainly have all these contingency rules, if you will, and that's fine. You, you found a new exception and how it works, and when you understood it, your predictions go up. Right? But, right. but I, I tend to be not, I'm not very philosophical about the model. I'm more technical, and that, that's what makes sometimes what I say about the iPhone a little different than other people. So some people say, look, the iPhone was disruptive because, frankly, it, um, if you look at the data of who was buying the iPhone in its first year or two, it was all these people who did not own smartphones before, and they weren't buying it for all the traditional smartphone reasons, which were internet access and email and uh, voice and telephony and all your PDA functionality. No, the iPhone people were buying it. It was their first smartphone because it let them hook onto the internet. It was internet usage that was driving iPhone adoption. And so those were new customers, if you will, for smartphones. So wasn't this a new market disruption in that it enabled a whole new group of people to start connecting mobily to the Internet? So that's, that's one of the arguments that it was a new market disruption. Um, yeah, it's, it's almost like, like the old saying, like, it, when a, a change in degree is so great, it becomes a change in kind. So... Something right. along those lines. One, one, thing, one thing is, if, if 80% of businesses fail by default, then you've only got 20% left to deal with. And you, you reeled off quite a few exceptions just there, and it seems to me that actually the exceptions make up quite a large percentage of that 20%. So well, where does that leave us? Well, look, if, if, um, if we were to write the exceptions on a little piece of paper, and, on little piece of paper and the rule on little piece of paper, the, the exceptions would probably pile up about an inch and a half 
uh, the rule would probably go up about 10 feet, right? In terms of, right, so, so we're not talking about a lot of exceptions here, but exceptions need to be taken very, very seriously. And then the question is, look, is it a real exception or a false exception? Um, and there's a number of ways it can be a false exception. Uh, one, we just simply have the facts wrong, right? For example, um, we're, we're not remembering history appropriately, right? right. Or, um, you know, statistically, this is the hardest part for me, is statistically there are going to be some businesses that succeed. Uh, and, you know, in a bell curve, you, you have outliers, and it may have nothing to do with those businesses. In other words, you flip enough coins, you're bound to get heads sooner or later. Um, so the question is, how, some of those exceptions are statistical almost inevitabilities. So how do you separate them from the actual substantive anomalies that you can learn from? And that's excruciatingly difficult and where, where I spend a lot of thought time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. Um, well, Justin, I, I guess we probably should wrap it up, right? Yeah, I, I think don't it's been a uh, really interesting discussion. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to keep uh, Thomas on, on, online too long. So, well, Thomas, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, it was a really fascinating um, idea. And I think the, uh, the precepts of your model are, are, are just, to, just to even understand them at the superficial level is probably going to be useful to a lot of entrepreneurs. It's, it's already made me think, um, just, just since I've been focusing on your work, I've already thought of about three interesting businesses <laughs> when, <laughs> when approaching it from that angle. So, No, no, I, I hope so. And, and really, um, I guess sort of the end cap, you know, w- I, I believe in research with all its warts, right? So what do we have? What is it telling us? What doesn't it tell us? And um, I think uh, I've said this before, but what, what's unique about what we do is we take a data-centric empirical approach to, to deciding or to trying to predict if a business will survive or fail. So the contrast is is what most of us do. So, you know, I myself have done this, um, you know, smart managers, uh, even smart investors, what we tend to do is take the inside view, which means to look at a business and evaluate it based on its internal merits. You know, what's the team? What's the IP? You know, do we like it? Does it pass our gut check? And, and that's a perfectly valid way of evaluating a business. The trouble is, it's limited to our own knowledge and our own biases and our gut feel. What I do is called the outside view, which is says, look, let's just take a ton of data. And instead of looking at each flower as unique, let's look at the whole field and say, you know, in what circum, you know, what, what other companies have been in that circumstance before and what happened in a, in a statistical level, right? What tends to happen in certain circumstances? So I think that between people's understanding, you know, the entrepreneur or the investor's understanding of the inside view, and my understanding of, of the outside view, we can put them together and make a full picture uh, where with, without the broad perspective, um, I, I feel like it, it, it's only a half truth, right? You, only, you, you have much fewer true uh, tools to know if, if you're really onto something or not. And it, the fact of the matter is most people just don't have the time and resources and interest to spend their whole lives looking at the outside view and getting that data and crunching it like I do. Um, so, so given that that's the case, uh, you know that that's where we try to complement what people are doing in the in the businesses themselves. Well, that seems like an extremely valuable um, you know service. I, I can I can really understand why companies um, would need this kind of outside advice because I think it, it's so hard to see that what the forest for the trees. Yeah. Um, when you're stuck in the inside. 
um, much less be objective about it, much less be able to just say, you know, let's be honest about where we stand. And uh, especially, and then of course, in um, in and uh, for VCs, you know, I mean, they they get behind a project, they put money into something, and you know, they probably could really use some good advice about, okay, is this really in line with disruptive theory? Are we fooling ourselves, and do we want to do another round of investment? Yeah, no, and repeat players, obviously, they, they care about those portfolio differences. And, I mean, not, not every – so, you know, we're doing this with the hedge funds, too, that they're just looking at publicly traded companies and trying to, trying to create strategies around these principles. And um, to give you an idea, there was one, uh, one set of stocks that I picked for a, a hedge fund uh, 15 months ago. And uh, we looked yesterday at, at the ROI, just straight over ROI over 15 months. And uh, we beat the S and P 500 by 75 percent in 15 wow. months. So, so wow, I mean, it it works, right? It actually works. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I can't say that every single portfolio I ever do is going to have that incredible return, but that was some welcome news yesterday. Um, just from one example, uh, it's you know it, it's amazing um, how mu- how common some of these patterns are if we can just recognize them. That is amazing. So you better you better keep the secret close to your chest. That's what I'm saying. Well, you get the idea, right? <laughs> I do, right? And you're doing, yeah, that's very good. Or, or no, rather, good. you know, maybe even a better idea is to start a, uh, you know, to start your own VC firm or private equity firm. Do you work with any kind of small guys like us, um, or is your only thing to work with large companies? Uh, so that's been a tough thing. So my, um, you know, uh, my personal passion i i love to work with startups um but the the problem has just been that they they generally can't afford me right and that's and i don't i'm not trying to brag but it's 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 actually challenging right because there, there's lots of startups in fact in portland i've worked with a couple dozen startups and most of the time i'll you know it's, it's very limited and it's i don't even charge them right but it's 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 just really really hard um it's really hard to to balance the needs of the pnl because it's just frankly, it's expensive, right? And as, unless you have a hundred million in revenue or more, it's very hard to afford it's the kind of stuff I do. Which I wish I could find a way to break that. To be honest with you, because I'd love to. Besides, if I figure out how to really engage more startups, maybe my company would be more disruptive, and I would have a different answer to that sentence, right? <laughs> That's what I, I was know. sort of think. That's what I was sort of thinking. If you were like a special consultant to Y Combinator, right? They bring their batch of forty companies in, and you know, Y Combinator, an aggregate, pays for a certain amount of your time to give feedback to the group of companies. Like you do an, a quick analysis. All right, well, look, based on their plans, this is what looks like it's going to work, and this is heading. In, you know, this is going with the wind. And this is going into the wind. You know? Yeah. No, I would love that. In fact, um, yeah, I think that could work. In fact. You know, every just about every well, all of my clients have portfolios, if you will, like Y Combinator does. They have a group that they've mm-hmm. invested in and that they're trying to grow, whether it's a VC portfolio or a corporate portfolio, and and that's that's exactly what I do. Um, if you guys would love, if 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 you think someone in Y Combinator would like to meet, I would I'd love to be in touch. I've just admired them from afar. I haven't met them. We have a couple of contacts in there um, and that maybe we could, uh, you know, help get you in touch with them because I, I, I yeah, I, I, your your model and your ideas are so powerful. It would just be a shame not to see it um, applied more directly in the in all these early stage web startups. Well, uh, Thomas, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was uh, it was a really fascinating discussion, and uh, we hope we maybe get you on again sometime down the road. 
Yeah, hey, thank you, Jason and Justin. This, this has been terrific. Thanks so much. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. 